It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This week, as is traditional, it's go back over 2020 time. And today, it's politics. You know, what was past, what wasn't. Who coped? Who didn't? Who was sacked? Who should have been sacked? Who was caught out but somehow stuck around? We drove for roughly half an hour and ended up on the outskirts of Barnet Castle Town. We did not visit the castle. It is important for votes to be physical because we are coming here together as a single parliament and we are voting on things that have a major effect on people's lives. To have no deal would be a failure of negotiation, a failure that has to be owned by the Prime Minister. He promised the British people he'd get a good deal. He needs to deliver on that promise. Lots of jobs are at risk, lots of businesses are suffering, which is why we've put in place all the measures we have. It's to provide that bridge, that lifeline. We took decisions that we thought on balance were the right ones. So despite our best intentions, I do acknowledge that we did not get this right, and I'm sorry for that. Those are some of the characters in the political drama. Now, together with writer and broadcaster for The Times, Matt Chorley, and Times Red box reporter Esther Webber, we put together the play. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, 2020 in politics, a year of slow disaster. I'm Matt Chorley. I write a column for The Times on a Saturday. I present on Times Radio the mid-morning show on Monday to Thursday. And despite me being phenomenally rude about lots of them, quite a lot of people in Westminster still bother my WhatsApps at various times of the day and nights to tell me what's really going on. So you suddenly find your WhatsApp is blossoming with stuff from politicians. <laughs> yeah, I think the time when it probably exploded most this year was the night that Boris Johnson nearly cancelled Strictly Come Dancing, <laughs> uh, which was the night after my colleague Stephen Swinford had written the story that a second lockdown was coming in England. It sort of quite seriously mucked up the government's plans because they weren't planning to announce that until the following week. So he decided he had to announce it. And I was at Longleat Safari Park for most of the day, trying to keep across what was happening. Uh, and then uh, sat down like everyone else on Saturday night to watch Pointless and instead ended up watching The Prime Minister. And you can make your own joke there. My phone absolutely lit up with fury 
uh, amongst Tory MPs and quite a lot of ministers, actually, about what a hash the Prime Minister seemed to be making of it. How had we ended up in a position of spending three weeks arguing with Keir Starmer that a second lockdown was a terrible idea and then arguing on primetime Saturday night television it was a good idea, the communication was all over the place and people were phenomenally cross about it. Normally, I'd be in Westminster picking up all of that in quiet corridors, or even better, over lunch. But of course, nobody's allowed to have lunch with anyone anymore. So yeah, it's all done through WhatsApps. So you're in Longleat Safari Park. There were no animals to be seen. You had to keep your kids entertained with stories of what the MPs were telling you on WhatsApp. Yeah, there was part of me thinking there's a huge moment in British politics as the Prime Minister prepares a second lockdown, while also sort of saying, is that a leopard? Oh, no, it's a log. Yeah, that was basically my Saturday. But enough with the empty safari parks already. I asked Matt to concentrate on an empty chair somewhere in Downing Street. Tell us a little bit about the importance of the departure of Dominic Cummings and what you think that has told you about Boris Johnson as PM. The beginning of the year, he was planning to hire weirdos and misfits to shake up what was going on in Downing Street and to change the way the country was run. And he ends the year not even in Downing Street himself. It turned out he was too much of a weird misfit, even for number 10. And I suppose the middle of the year was the Barnard Castle thing was the turning point. It may well have been the turning point of Dominic Cummings as well in that although Boris Johnson clung to him and created this impression, it was one rule for them and one rule for everyone else. Actually, he was absolutely furious about it. And behind the scenes, everyone I spoke to said Dominic Cummings came very close uh, to having to leave Downing Street at that point. But he was seen as being useful to the Prime Minister in the middle of that crisis and losing him would have been a a big problem. So then we get to the point where he does finally leave and there's this big hoo-ha about all these people whose names seem very important for that week. Lee Kane was Director of Comms, was going to become Chief of Staff. Uh, he was an ally of Dominic Cummings. And then along comes Allegra Stratton, who will become a household name in the new year when she starts presenting these televised briefings. She's the new spin doctor and face of the regime. She's a big ally of Carrie Simons, the Prime Minister's fiance, and orchestrates, first of all, that Lee Kane doesn't become Chief of Staff. In fact, he's going to leave Number 10, and then Dominic Cummings is also going to leave Number 10. And what really struck me was there was no great policy disagreement. It wasn't, you know, one wants to put up taxes and one wants to cut taxes, or one wants a nuclear deterrent and the other one doesn't. It was all sort of who's got the best chair and who speaks to the Prime Minister at the best time of the day. And and it was all about personality and ego. It wasn't about ideology at all. I mean, I'm in any way suggesting that the Prime Minister would have wished coronavirus on the country. It has disguised the fact that there's not really a Project Johnson. There's nothing going on there. There's no grand plan. Yeah, that's a really good point. What would have happened if there hadn't been the pandemic? Because they didn't plan for the pandemic. It wasn't in the manifesto. Dominic Cummings had been brought into number 10. And as if I recall rightly, he was given the run of the place. They even lost the chancellor that they wanted because he wasn't prepared to have one of Dominic Cummings' place people in his office. So what would have happened with Dominic Cummings in a Boris government without the pandemic? Dominic Cummings prided himself on being from the north, as we all now know, from Durham. But you only really buy into the cult of Dominic Cummings if you are entirely an Oxbridge, London-centric metropolitan elite inhabitant of the Westminster bubble. He just convinced lots of people who were out of touch metropolitan elites that he was this great scion of the north. No one can argue about the Vote Leave campaign or even the Get Brexit done. He does have a great ability to sum up complex arguments into easily digested sound bites that resonate with normal people in a way that actually quite a lot of the political class do have trouble communicating with. However, 
for someone with all of those abilities, once in power, he spent an awful lot of time fretting about who sat where in Whitehall, the formation of government departments, moving the House of Lords to York. I genuinely don't know what the answer to the question is. I suspect we'd have spent months and months of Boris Johnson re-announcing that he's hiring more policemen and that he's hiring more doctors and nurses. And beyond that, I just don't know what Johnsonism really is. Is it the anti-immigration, vote-leave, populist Britain Trump, or is it the cuddly, bicycle-riding London Mayor Boris Johnson? I suspect it's neither. He's the one who wants to be in power. He's the one who wants to be liked. That's a very good question. I mean, is he pretty Johnson or is he Rishi Johnson? Nobody knows. And he quite likes the idea of being both for as long as he possibly can, I suspect. So who's going to take on that role as main advisor person, or is there not going to be one? So he's hired this guy called Dan Rosenfield, who supposedly will, you know, bang heads together and get things done. But that still doesn't address the question of what is it that he's going to get done? What is the government's mission in July next year or in December next year? And and let's not forget, it's 2022 and 2023. We could go to the end of 2024 before we need a general election. The beginning of the year could have been a big moment for them. By the time they were ready to launch whatever their big ideas were, it got completely wiped away by the pandemic. And it's not completely clear what the plan is beyond that. Does he want to shake the school system? Should we do away with GCSEs altogether? Does he want to fundamentally overhaul the health service? It all seems like a bit of a waste. What was the point? It's a bit of a mystery. Leaving that to ponder on the meaning of things for the moment, we now turn elsewhere for another perspective. My name's Esther Webber, and I'm a Red Box reporter for The Times. So every day I get up quite early and try to work out what's happening in the day ahead in politics. Now, all of us have changed the logistics of how we work, but they've had to do it in Westminster as well in a really unusual way. What's happened? How's it all gone? So this has been one of the big stories of the year. The business that MPs do in Parliament is really connected to the place where they sit. Most legislation and debates up until this year were all done in person. MPs had to be present in the chamber to speak. And when it became clear in March, April, that this virus was going to be pretty serious. Parliament couldn't really be exempted from that because MPs are at risk of infection, just like anyone else. The parliamentary digital service was scrambled to produce an alternative way of working. What they eventually came up with was MPs would be able to take part in questions from home. And also there was a digital voting system devised very quickly. The system has gone through various iterations since then. It just all seemed a bit mad, really, because of course you were going to vote remotely and of course you were going to participate by Zoom at the height of a pandemic. Why wouldn't you? And yet it seemed to be really controversial within Parliament and that was tricky to understand. Looking at it from the outside, a lot of people were completely baffled by the idea. The 
countervailing view, I guess, put forward by Jacob Rees-Mogg, the leader of the House, but also by a, a lot of other MPs, was that there are certain key workers who have had to continue going to work and MPs should see themselves in that category and be present on the estate unless they had a medical reason not to. It's been a constant back and forth, really, between the government and mainly opposition MPs, with the government trying to keep business as much based in Parliament as possible. That included getting rid of digital voting and replacing it with the proxy voting system. So the government was trying to keep things very close. And on the other hand, the opposition MPs saying this is an unnecessary risk. I don't understand why you'd be opposed to digital voting. So the short case against digital voting is that it's almost a sacred thing. Some people think it didn't do justice to the system, the fact that you could cast your vote while you might also be watching Neighbours or in Sainsbury's, the main parties would potentially find it harder to influence MPs about how to vote if they're not uh, <laughs> on site. Uh, so the whips will not have as much power if people are voting from their phones. Oh, you're saying a WhatsApp whip is not as powerful as an in-your-face whip? That's right, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, what changed during the course of the year? A, a system was put together quite quickly to allow remote participation in April. Then it was decided at the end of May that digital voting could not continue and Jacob Rees-Mogg introduced this idea now known as the Mog Conga where MPs would have to queue up to vote in a socially distanced <laughs> way. Did they have somebody like you have outside Tesco's to kind of regulate how the queue moved? No, I don't think so. And that actually led to kind of the same divisions you would see in some public queues. So people photographing each other and saying, oh, you're not observing the distance properly. More recently, they decided to allow a lot more people to vote by proxy. So that means nominating someone to cast your vote for you. It strikes me that some people are just really keen on the old ways that they've loved for so long and really don't like the idea that they will be effectively changed because after the pandemic is over, who wants to go back to some of those ridiculous old ways? The leader of the House certainly was very keen that the changes that were made were seen as temporary changes. It was about not letting the genie out of the bottle and instituting things that would then carry on indefinitely. So presumably, one of the things that was kind of biggest hit in the eyes of the traditionalists was the kind of raucousness of Prime Minister's questions. The House authorities and MPs thought about different things like having perspex screens around MPs and their seats. They really wanted some 
return to what you might call the normal chamber of the cuss and thrust, the booing and the jeering and the hear-hearing. And to come here with these barristers' bluster to obfuscate the truth and for a man like him, a party like this and a leader like this, this Prime Minister, to talk about morals and morality is a disgrace! Because the social distancing rules, you can't have a packed chamber and you can't have hundreds of backbenchers behind the Prime Minister as they would do before. Not enough Chorley, insufficient Weber. If you want more, as well as getting to the heart of the stories that matter every day with the Times and the Sunday Times, subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And I think that takes us rather neatly to the leader of the opposition. One point of being government is just that you're in government and the car comes and takes you to checkers and stuff like that. Um, the leader of the opposition has an altogether trickier time. I, I, I kind of have a two-part version of Keir Starmer. One is telling Boris that he's useless, and the other one is telling people that Corbyn's gone and he's not coming back. Um, what do you see? I'm, I'm with you on that. There's sort of two Keirs. One is that he's actually been much tougher on his own party than he has been with the government. And it's not just Jeremy Corbyn. Even if you accept his argument that he is not anti-Semitic at face value, he seemed remarkably happy for lots of people to think he was anti-Semitic without doing anything about it. And he completely fell into that trap again when the um, report from the Equality and Human Rights Commission came out. Uh, and his initial response was to say uh, it all been exaggerated for political purposes. But it's not just him. It was Rebecca Long-Bailey earlier in the year. Uh, Keir Starmer had appointed her as the Shadow Education Secretary. She retweeted something with an anti-Semitic trope in it and he fired her. He was much, much tougher on them than he has been on the government, really. He's weeks and weeks of watching PMQs. Um, he hasn't really gone for the government very often. We do this thing on my show where Tim Shipper from the Sunday Times joins me in the studio and we pause PMQs live. We pause him and say, that's quite a good question. How can Boris Johnson possibly avoid that? And obviously then Boris Johnson does avoid it. Sometimes as your leader of the opposition, you have to do something right. You have to 
go for the jugular a bit. My concern with him is he lacks a bit of courage politically, sort of sticking his neck out a bit. As a result, he's been largely irrelevant in 2020. I mean, he is polling better um, than most leaders of the opposition at this point. I think better than any leader of the opposition apart from Tony Blair, which is quite a standard to judge him by. But I'm not really sure what's going on there uh, or, again, what Starmerism is. It maybe doesn't matter. Maybe I'm looking for something that, that doesn't exist and actually all Starmer needs to do is think that actually he is John Smith slash Tony Blair. It's the early 90s. This is a Tory government which has had a terrible crisis on its watch. The economy's going to tank. Even if the economy is picking up by the time of the next election, he wins by default. He needs a phenomenal landslide result in the next election. He doesn't feel like he's got the courage, pizzazz to secure that. What do Labour MPs say to you about all this? Looking at it from the outside, in the first year... Given that anti-Semitism was something he wasn't going to tolerate, and then, as you say, they own all pop up and offer themselves as sacrifices by not taking up the right position, so he has to kind of whack them on the head, and that therefore becomes his first thing. So, you spend a large part of your first year establishing that you're not them, and you've whacked them on the head. But then you've still got four years of this government left to go, with a majority of eighty, and that's not going to go away. When do you think it will be? appropriate to really start judging him by whether he seems exciting and credible and also has lambed into Johnson in such a way as you really feel there's a big distinction there. I definitely over the summer and into the autumn spoke to Labour MPs and some on the front bench and in the shadow cabinet who were, even in private, willing to defend Keir Starmer and say it's a very difficult job and the country's still behind Boris Johnson. Uh, So we don't want to look like we're playing party politics at the time of a crisis. And then there was always a but. But I can understand why people are frustrated that we're not going after them for this, that and the other. A few weeks ago now, Keir Starmer at PMQ sort of did try to mount a bit of an argument of where the government had failed on this and that. And it just doesn't quite land and uh, people thought that the barrister in him would prosecute Boris Johnson at the dispatch box and actually having not very many MPs in the House of Commons has completely changed the nature of PMQ so it's more like a courtroom and he could quietly pick through the evidence and prosecute the case against the Prime Minister if the defendant can just stand up and make a joke or call him Captain Hindsight and undermine the entire thing nobody will remember that he abstained on the question of the new tier structure in England by 2024 But what does that tell you about his willingness to take a tough decision? Whatever you think of the Prime Minister and the way that he's handled coronavirus, he does not have the luxury of abstaining on the big questions for the country. When the chips are down, does Keir Starmer look like someone who's going to make the bold decision or the easy one? So far, he's given the impression of opting for the easy option. There's no great leader in history who was called Vlad the Abstainer. (laughs) Exactly right. If Keir Starmer is predominantly spends the next four years abstaining on the big issues of the day because it's not quite how he would like things to be. It does suggest to people that when when difficult decisions are to be made, he's happy for other people to make them. Esther, let's move on to your unusual choice of politician of the year. I think it had to be Marcus Rashford for politician of the year and the eloquence and restraint with which he carried out his part in the campaign for the extension of free school meals, I think was a a lesson to everyone involved. He wrote a very moving piece for Red Box where he talked about facing hunger as a child and his own mum going without 
to help him. Then when the inevitable backlash came, he sort of kept his cool and he was very good at grace under fire. And that's something I think a lot of politicians could learn from. The civility has not been a hallmark of our political debate over the past few years and maybe it's something where they can take a leaf out of his book. It's one of the difficulties that a government has dealing with somebody like Marcus Rashford is that they can't say about him what they would say about a political opponent without looking really horrible. No, the government can't directly go for this very popular, charismatic figure. But that didn't stop them from sort of digging their heels in quite firmly on the changes he was asking for. It's interesting to unpack the way they did that and possibly the intervention of a celebrity making this appeal over their heads actually annoyed quite a few of them and (laughs) made them think this wasn't part of the normal (laughs) terms of debate. What's funny about that to some of us who are a bit older is this is exactly this happened over the Gurkhas with Joanna Lumley. Uh, I think under the Brown government uh, it was. It might have been under the Blair government. And my recollection is all the Conservatives enthusiastically supported Joanna Lumley, then I might be wrong. So it's a kind of source for goose and source for gander thing, isn't it? There was also support for Marcus Rashford coming from the Conservative benches as well. There are a few people, Robert Halfon, the chair of the Education Select Committee, who had been switched on to this for a while. But it was the fact that it gained such a visible champion that kind of took the debate into a different pace that they couldn't keep up with. Why didn't they just give in immediately, given that they always were going to have to give in? The writing was on the wall from quite an early stage this summer. They were getting absolutely hammered on this issue and they were losing the public. The Treasury is so under siege at the moment. They're embarking on this astronomical level of spending and the extension of free school meals They worry this will become a permanent form of benefit and that they will set a precedent that they then can't go back on. Well, they've certainly got that one right. If the winter fuel allowance, etc., anything to go by. Now let's talk about your third figure, the rise of Rishi. Come on, are we just being taken in here? I've been through that. I'm now well out the other side. So January 2020, Rishi Sunak was a a Treasury minister that no one had heard of. He was catapulted into the cabinet after Sajid Javid quit because Dominic Cummings wanted to tie up and slaughter his entire team of advisers. So Rishi Sunak suddenly becomes Chancellor. He was well known in the chattering classes of lobby journalists. He wrote together with Oliver Dowden and Robert Jenrick, the three amigos of the Tory junior ranks. He wrote a piece for me on uh, Times Red Box in the summer of 2019 saying only Boris Johnson can save the Tory party. And then all three of them managed to get themselves cabinet jobs when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, would you believe? He arrived in the Treasury and within only a matter of weeks had to deliver a, a, a budget. 
Right at the very start of the pandemic, I think he announced £12 billion of spending, which was seen as an extraordinary amount of money. I think early on, he's, he was presentable. He's a good communicator. He was willing, in a way that the Prime Minister isn't, to deliver bad news, albeit bad news wrapped up in a £12 billion cheque. <laughs> I've had probably more messages from Tory MPs and government ministers about Rishi Sunak's Instagram account than almost any other individual subject, maybe apart from coronavirus in general. Why? Rishi Sunak's Instagram account is a collection of photos of him looking like a catalogue model, you know, visiting businesses, sleeves rolled up, or sitting at his desk looking ponderously at a blank sheet of paper, or, as we've seen every time he's made a big announcement, you know, if it was £12 billion in a budget, he'd put a uh, graphic on his Instagram account, but it wouldn't have the Conservative Party on it, or even the government logo. It had his own signature, Rishi Sunak Chancellor underneath, just sort of building his own brand. (laughs) And the Sunak coat of arms. Exactly. And I I likened it earlier in the year to a bit like Innocent Smoothies, still trying to pretend they weren't now part of Coca-Cola. They were this sort of slightly trendy internet startup outfit (laughs) that had nothing to do at all with the evil multinational conglomerate that they'd actually been bought up by. On my Times radio show every month, we've run a focus group. It's phenomenal. Every single occasion, no matter what they said about Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer or, or coronavirus or anything else, they all loved Rishi Sunak. And they all saw him as being slightly separate to the rest of politics and they thought he seemed a good egg and was doing the right thing. I think the fact he's a, a not unattractive man and he's quite young and frankly the fact he's not a white man does make him stand out in Westminster politics. So I think all that played to his advantage. I think there's been a bit of overreach and he has become mockable. Before his public spending review, he posted photos of himself wearing a shirt and tie with a hoodie over the top, which was one of the more preposterous, you know, I'm a serious, hard-working businessman, but I'm also casual and relaxed, just like you. I think he's got a very big challenge in 2021. He is going to have to make some difficult decisions. Furlough will have to end. By that point, hopefully lots of people have been vaccinated and the economy will start going back to normal. But lots of people will be out of work and he's going to have to make some very difficult decisions. And he's really torn because Boris Johnson loves spending money and has no real desire to get borrowing down. As Chancellor, he's got to try and balance the books in some way. And lots of Tory MPs and Cabinet Ministers don't think taxes should go up. The way you put it makes me feel slightly uncharitably towards him, that actually the things he's done were the only things he could conceivably do. The obvious decisions have been used up, and now you get the contentious decisions to come post the pandemic, and each one of them is actually going to be difficult. And we don't know if he does difficult. The fact that he has so expertly executed the easy, low-hanging fruit and really made something of himself. He is now a household name. But I think when the going gets tough, it's worth just knowing that there are enough Tory MPs on the back benches who are a bit irritated with brand Rishi already. Actually, Allegra Stratton, the Prime Minister's new press secretary, has come directly from working for Rishi. So maybe she will do for Boris Johnson what she managed to do for Rishi sooner. Yeah, just because he hasn't dealt with a difficult dilemma yet doesn't mean he can't. So do you think that he can follow in the footsteps of John Moore, Alan Milburn, Amber Rudd, and become a future Prime Minister? (laughs) I 
don't know is the honest answer. I still think the great likelihood is that Boris Johnson fights the next election. He did win an 80-seat majority, uh, unless and until something goes so catastrophically wrong that the Tories remove him. I, you need to remember that Theresa May was removed because uh, of Brexit wasn't happening, not just because everyone has sort of decided she wasn't up, uh, up to it. So assuming that Boris Johnson fights the next election, even were he to lose that, then... You know, there's then a bun fight for the, the future of the Tory party and Keir Starmer's prime minister. And so it's a long way off anyone else becoming prime minister. Back this time last year, we hadn't heard of coronavirus. And although there won't be something as big as that, there will be big things in between now and that election. And that actually, we haven't the faintest idea what's going to happen and we should stop pretending that we do. Exactly right. And I do think that it is possible that 2021 is a year on which the country, the economy, politics pivots quite dramatically. Boris Johnson has got the presidency of the G7 next year, so he could have all the world leaders and Joe Biden coming to the UK, rubbing shoulders with them all, restating Britain's place on the uh, world stage. He's got the COP26 climate change talks in Glasgow at the end of the year. Again, he could show the lead on tackling climate change. Actually, one thing he does seem to have shown uh, some willingness for is taking some tough decisions, bringing forward some deadlines, looking to tackle climate change. You're totally right that 12 months ago, we were just recovering from a general election that shocked everyone, not least the key participants in it. And in 12 months' time, we could be in another completely um, different place. It could be that Keir Starmer has stormed ahead, has, has found his voice in the three key issues which resonate with the nation. It could be that Labour MPs have already grown tired of his reluctance to stick the boot in, and there's mutterings on their side that they're not going to go into the next election with him. I mean, the key point of all this is, despite how much time you and I spend doing it, there's absolutely no point making predictions. <laughs> Esther, your third and final part takes us to Scotland. Yes, the release of Scottish exam results at the beginning of August was instantly a disaster. It became clear that loads of students who had not been able to set their exams because of coronavirus had been downgraded through this algorithm that was used. And this had disproportionately affected pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds. It was obviously a huge miscalculation by the Scottish government to go down the route of using this algorithm. But it was also really interesting the speed with which they did U-turn and they held up their hands and said, we've got this completely wrong and we're going to uh, reinstate teachers' predicted grades. It became clear from that moment that a very similar thing was going to happen in England. England knew this was coming and we went ahead with the algorithm system <clears throat> and lo and behold, the same thing happened. Hmm. Who knew? Who knew in England? It took a much longer time before the government realised it was untenable. One of the interesting things about Nicola Sturgeon is there was no 
impact upon her popularity as far as I can see, or am I missing something? It was terrible front pages for the Scottish government. It was students holding up their exam results on the front page and saying, I was meant to be the first from my family to go to university. I had a place to study medicine and now I won't be going. Yet it hasn't damaged her standing in the polls. It's this kind of Teflon quality which Nicola Sturgeon seems to have. There was a story we did back in September where the Scottish Times polled people and they discovered that some voters in Scotland were giving her credit for certain policies that were actually carried out by the Westminster government. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she was even benefiting from policies which she hadn't designed or implemented. She's taken this general mode of saying, we don't always get things right, but here's what we're trying to do. And if we have a choice between erring on the side of caution and opening things up, we will err on the side of caution. It's that kind of directness which people have responded to. So would you say that 2020 has strengthened or weakened the union as a forward prospect? I think 2020 has been bad for the union and I think people need to get a bit more serious about thinking what their response to the elections in May in Scotland is going to be and how the main parties are going to play it if they don't want independence to rear its head again. And that's it. Let's be frank, it's been a year when the high rhetoric of politics has been dashed against the rocks of reality. When, to be blunt, BS didn't really cut it. Some politicians must be hoping that we get back to normal really soon. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guests, writer and broadcaster for The Times, Matt Chorley, and Times Red Box reporter Esther Webber. And you can read more of Matt and Esther's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltug. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.